Hey, everyone, it's Rebecca. And as a small reminder, if you haven't already, I hope you will check out my brand new podcast, The Dropout. We're getting incredible feedback. So many of you have been reaching out to me on Twitter and Instagram um, with your comments on this story. It's been so much a part of my life. I've spent so much time on it, and I hope you will check it out if you haven't already. It's called The Dropout, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I was 39 looking at 40, and I started my entire life again, moved to London, didn't know anyone. And that's when I could say to myself, I certainly didn't wear a badge. I could just say, okay, there's something here. Yeah, there's something here. And that was great. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, on today's episode of No Limits, Claude Silver is the chief heart officer for VaynerMedia. She's basically the right hand to Gary Vaynerchuk. Her role makes her responsible for the heartbeat of the company, making sure employees are happy while acting as a mentor to almost a thousand people. On this episode, Claude shares her tips for finding a mentor. It was something she struggled with early in life. She also talks about overcoming fear of networking and the best ways to give feedback and how to get rid of limiting beliefs. Plus, how do you leave a job and not burn a bridge? Hear how she found a new career path when she was feeling lost. This is my conversation with Claude Silver. Claude Silver, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. And I'm really excited because I think you're our first chief heart officer to ever enter the No Limits Forum. I have a feeling I might be. Yeah. Do you know, does this role exist anywhere else? It doesn't. Not that I know. <laughs> People have written me and said, I'm now the chief heart officer of my real estate agency. And I'm like, right on. That's awesome. That's well, I we mean, do it. It's kind of sad in some ways that it didn't until you came along at VaynerMedia that this is not a role that existed anywhere else. I know. It's really the branding of HR and how we've chosen to rebrand or brand, but it just makes so much sense. I I think it's people. It's heart. Well, and I think it. I think it's important for people to feel like they have an ally in HR, and that relationship can be a complicated one. And not to diss anybody out there who's in HR. I know there's a lot of people who work really hard in that field and do a great job. But I think there's also that sort of people have like sometimes a negative vibe of what you know. In the Me Too movement, for example, mm-hmm. it was often people would say, well, HR was really trying to protect the company and not protect the employees. Yeah. I mean, it's compliance. They, I think they've been seen as police officers, uh, no people on the reactive defense. And we want to be more proactive on the offense. Like, how can I get to that person and, and do a stay interview rather than an exit interview mm. with someone? Like, let's make their lives more happier. Let's not get them on the on the outs. And you work... I would call you a right hand to Gary Vaynerchuk. Is that the appropriate? I I believe that would be that would be appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people out there, if you're not familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, he also goes by Gary V. Hard to imagine they wouldn't be, but tell us a little more about him. Yeah, Gary's amazing. He's a, a self-made entrepreneur. He's the best salesperson out there. He is an optimist. He has several different companies, uh, which are completely 
rogue, renegade, and necessary in today's marketing society. I mean, he comes up with with companies as 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 much as I drink water during the day, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's fabulous, and he's got a heart of gold. One of the reasons I wanted to have you here to talk is because you are in your role. You're really a mentor to. Hundreds of people. How many people is it at this point? Yeah, we're close to 900 now. Close to 900 people, which obviously is a big job to be a mentor to that many people. But I think, you know, for me, when I was a kid, my dad used to always tell me growing up, find a mentor, find a mentor. And it was great advice, but it also was daunting advice. Because I think when you're getting started or even when you're far along in your career, this whole notion that we should have a mentor or mentors and find mentors it's overwhelming. Well, I think it's scary to even put yourself in that position of asking. Mm-hmm. Like, can I ask that person to be a mentor? I know it's time consuming. I know they have a full-time job, whatever, whatever. I know they do charity work. So I think even putting yourself in that position, which, by the way, is such an empowering position, but it can be extremely daunting. And it's different than a coach because, you know, you sign up to the tennis team and you know you're going to have the coach. That's that's his You're or on her. the team either way. Exactly. But it's different, I think, at a company when you might have a manager, but you really want that other outside voice or someone else that's in a different department or someone else that works at a different company. But it does take, you know, it takes a risk to say, gosh, I really, I really look up to that person. I like what he or she is about. I'm going to ask. How have you found the mentors in your career? Um, I have found a few good mentors at work. Uh, and I have to tell you, I was never told to find a mentor, which is different. I'm, I was thinking about what you just said, and I wonder if my earlier career, earlier life would have been a little bit different had mm-hmm. I had I had that impetus to look for someone outside of a sports coach. So just food for thought, by the way. Well, on that point, and we'll come back around to you finding mentors and how you found them, but you studied clinical psychology. Yeah, clinical transpersonal psychology, yep. And you started out in a slightly different field. I, I did. <laughs> well, I uh, I started out in um, I started out teaching ropes courses and outward bound courses, and so outdoor adventure, outdoor education, which is something that came really naturally to me. I knew it was all about empowerment, using your physical body, and and being a coach. Quite frankly, which is I keep using that word coach. I recognize talking to you, but that's I think where I'm most comfortable. That type of relationship. Uh, and then I found myself in this wide world of marketing and advertising. I had I had no business being here. I was training to be a, a social worker and getting my MSW and literally took a left turn. And uh, there I was in this world of the Internet dot com 1998, you know, pre Google, pre Facebook. You said earlier, though, you, you talked about this idea that maybe if you had found mentors earlier or knew that you should be looking that things might have been different. They might have. I feel like I was one of those people that I didn't have a lot of options for myself coming out of high school. It wasn't even something I thought about. I I don't know. I don't know why I can study that another day. And so I went to the school that accepted me on waiting list. Mm -hmm. So that's just what I did because that's what I thought you did at 18 years old. And it would have been amazing going back in time now thinking, oh, I would have had that guiding light or that mentor. Now, my family was wonderful and incredible, but they wanted me to get a college education. And looking back on it, boy, oh boy, was I not ready. I mean, I was not ready. And so having a mentor or someone who could almost see me 
in five years would have been amazing to just kind of latch on to, believe it or not, as that 18, 19-year-old kind of lost. And how did you find the first mentor then? I found the first mentor at work, actually, and it was someone that is completely type A, so not really my kind of chill mentality. But I, I looked up to her. She had the she was a, a C-suite, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool for a female. And I, I actually knew I was probably a little bit older than her, believe it or not. And she, the way she thought, and, and I could tell the way she was organized in her head and even in her speaking, was something I really I wanted. And I knew that much. I knew that I wanted to... Um, I, I needed a new vocabulary it, to enter this kind of working world. And she was kind enough to, uh, Nicole Crane, I mean, she was kind enough to really take me under her wing, I think, and teach me some of the dark arts of advertising and uh, and behind the scenes. What's interesting about what you just said is I think a lot of people feel that pressure when they're initially, I, I know I felt this way, when you're initially looking for a mentor to sort of be up to the standard of that mentor. You know what I mean? And and the reality is, yes, on the one hand, you you want to be a person that fulfill that that's worthy, right? Or that is capable. But at the same time, in your case, you had things you wanted to learn and it was really valuable to find somebody who could teach you those things as opposed to trying to find somebody who would just sort of say, oh, you're great, Claude. You do everything right already, Claude. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. No, I, ne- <laughs> I, needed, I needed someone that could help me grow and really almost educate me, if you, if you think about it, because I, I was a beginner. I was just – I didn't even know – you know, in, in a work environment, you have to learn relationships and relationship management. And thinking, yes, I'm intuitive enough to know how to shuck and jive in a in an office space. But there is a nuance there, as we all know. There's a nuance of when to interrupt someone or when not to interrupt someone. When is it urgent? When is it not urgent? All those things in the how to how to send an email when you just received a real kind of like harsh one. Did she teach you all of that? She absolutely did. She absolutely. There's I, so much value in that. So much. And the, and the thing is. Rebecca, that I think is really important is I wanted to make sure I could return value to her. Mm-hmm. And so I hustled. I was a hard, hard worker. I did extra in those days to at least provide something. And I think I did. I think I was able to provide something. Uh, and it felt so it felt like it was a good value exchange, even though I wasn't I wasn't thinking like that. Yeah, then. sure. Well, but I, but I, again, another really valid and valuable point when you're looking at relationship dynamics and work, and, and I used to feel this way a lot in networking situations, I would walk into a room and I think all these people are way more important than I am. And if I take five minutes of their time, I'm actually wasting their time because they need to be talking to the other important people in the room. And for me, I, somewhere along the line, I changed that entire mentality to I need to approach or I want actually not need, but want to approach these conversations as curiosity conversations and exchanges with people that will be at least interesting. Yeah. And and at, at the end of the day, when you don't know people in a room, that's actually one of the to me, it's like one of the best things that can come out of it. All of a sudden you fall into a conversation with someone that's really interesting and you walk away from it and think, wow, like that was random and that was great. Yeah, exactly. And I think I also had a massive fear of networking. Oh, my God. I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I knew it was really important or I had to go wine and dine someone for my job. And so coming up with questions that I could ask them that were not work related is something that really helped me 
to show curiosity. And oftentimes it was like, oh, wow, you like skiing. I like snowboarding. Let's talk about that. <laughs> What's the difference? You know, those types of things. Because at the end of the day, we're humans. And that's the dealio. I agree. Back to Nicole real fast. Yeah. Did you explicitly say to her, will you be my mentor? I told her I explicitly wanted to work for her. And that meant changing departments. That's what I told her. It wasn't like I look up to you. I think she knew enough that I, there was something about her that I wanted to get to know in terms of how to work, how to, how to be a professional in the workplace. So I asked her if I could work for her. And you talked about the randomness of ending up in advertising. How did you make that transition? I was managing a grocery store in the Castro in San Francisco. It was, you know, at that point, 1997, 1998, as I said, there was a repeat customer that kept on coming in, really small boutique grocery store. There were no Whole Foods back then. I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> aging myself. And um, and this repeat customer came in one day and he said, you manage this grocery. Yes, I manage this grocery store. He said, I think you'd be a really good project manager. I'm starting an internet.com company, skateboarding, surfing, and snowboarding. You like to snowboard, right? Yep. And so the next thing I knew, I, I literally traded in that $20,000 job, I think, for like a $32,000 job, which was a lot of money. And I would drive my little beater sob down to Palo Alto, and I started to I get I got immersed in the world of digital. What was it like being in Palo Alto back in that time when the it was like the dot com bubble was building? It was building, but it was still very ghost townish. I can say it was nothing. Certainly not like today, but I don't even think it was anything like it was ten years ago. It was still. You knew that things were happening in warehouses, but you didn't know what was happening. You didn't see a lot of people riding their bikes and. That type of stuff. But you knew there was activity. And you also knew there was an influx of money somewhere. Like, who? I mean, it was, nine, again, it was the, the late 90s. Like, this was an, an action sport website, which now are like a dime a dozen. But back then, like, who invested in that? You worked with a number of Fortune 500 companies before you got to VaynerMedia. How did you make the choices once you found your way into advertising when the timing was right to leave and move on? Yeah. So I love the question because, again, I fell into this world. I didn't study advertising or marketing. Uh, in fact, I studied School of Life. So I was really just recruited each and every time. That's what happened. And I didn't really know what I was doing until I got to JWT, J. Walter Thompson, a very, very old and established advertising agency where I said to someone, oh, yeah, I'm going to go work for JWT. Well, do you know what JWT is? And I was like, I have no idea. And that's when I woke up and I said, oh, I'm here. I'm in it. I'm I'm making a career in advertising. But before that, it had been, oh, you like my skill set. You'll pay me more. I mean, it was a, I was a job jumper, just like many are, until I found something that made it made sense to me. Did the job jumping burn you at all? Hear more from Claude after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash no limits. That's Indeed.com slash no limits. Did the job jumping burn you at all? No, it never burnt me. Uh, I think I was always very honest with those that I was reporting to. Again, I feel like I've always been one of those late bloomers, and I used to call myself an underdog, but I think that's uh, defeatist. <laughs> but I was always like, hey, thank you so much for this opportunity. And it wasn't about, can you pay me more? I want you to pay me a bigger salary and I'll stay. However, this seems like something I'm interested in. 
And it always manifested around human behavior. What can I learn? What can I share about my psychology background? Because that's that's who I am at my core. Uh, and so I didn't. I don't feel like I burnt anyone, which is great. Mm-hmm. I, if I had, I'm sorry, but uh, I don't believe I had. What was what led the decision to go to VaynerMedia? So I met Gary when I was living in London, and I was I was working at Publicist London, running strategy. So great job, love London, um, everything about that. I was introduced to Gary on an email. We had a three minute conversation. Uh, he was boarding a plane. I was in London, kind of pacing my kitchen back and forth. I had followed Gary for a while, so this was big. Was this a headhunter that connected you to him? No, it was my best friend, yeah, who at that point ran media for Unilever. Now she's a chief brand officer of WW. Okay, So cool. just, yeah, she, she wrote me an email. She said, I met this guy. You're two sides of the same coin. You have to talk to him. And uh, soon enough, I came to New York, and we hit it off. We had a half an hour coffee. I c- could not tell you what we talked about other than probably just a lot of, like, exciting things and how we see the world. Uh, and then he offered me the job and I moved to New York May of 2014 and started with him. Which is a massive move, not only in a job from publicist to VaynerMedia, but also you left London to come here. Yeah, I left London and I think also working with an entrepreneur and a an independent agency that was completely different because it had a very startup vibe. And when you leave the big advertising agencies where everything is kind of done for you it's very very different to all of a sudden like where am I going to sit today I don't know where to hang my my coat you know this was in our earlier offices so it was it was a, a really exciting time and I loved going into VaynerMedia as probably one of the four or five oldest people at that time how old were you I was 45 so Oldest yeah. at 45. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, the difference between being at more of a startup vibe company versus being at um, something that's more established, that's been around longer, and the merits in both. How do you how do you answer that question? Well, uh, the startup mentality is amazing because it allows for risks, and it allows for failing, and it allows for <clears throat> standing back up and learning from those mistakes. So that, I think, in itself is, is just uh, incredible. And I love that vibe and that ethos, which is it's courageous. It's let's try this. Let's build this. OK, if it doesn't work, well, we'll go, go, go build something else. Whereas at a tried and true agency that's been around for 100 years or 50 years and has shareholders to account for, it's steady Eddie. Let's not rock the boat. This is what they wanted. This is what the clients asked for. Let's not like, we'll, we'll give them a big idea, but, you know, might not be completely pie in the sky. Right, right. Because these are longstanding relationships that you had when you're, I mean, it, it's very Mad Men. I think about the, some of the conversations I've seen on that show and it sounds similar. It's very, very Mad Men. And, and working with someone like Gary and the people that we have at Vayner is just like, what do you got today? Yeah. What's, what, what's, what's the insight you saw out there for, you know, um, Cracker Jacks. Okay, let's go tweet about it. Let's see if people are attracted to it. Obviously, there's a lot of great to be in an environment where you can throw things at the wall and see what works. But is there any is there any value left in sort of those old the the institutions that have been around for longer? Do they have staying power that the younger institutions might not have, or is that way of doing business playing it safe just not going to work anymore? I mean, my, my belief is that it's really the tide is turning, and I yeah. don't believe it's going to work for that much longer. Um, I just, 
I just don't. I think that it's, to your point, it's very safe. The one thing that you do get, the education that you get there is rigor. There's a structure. There is structure. There is rigor. There is hierarchy. And some people need that. And maybe when you're starting out, it is always good to know how to manage up. That's pretty good. How to get formal feedback. That's a pretty good thing to know. Whereas at a more of a startup vibe agency, you're we're teaching life skills, which is very different, I have to say. We're not teaching how to write that email. Although now that we're so big, we've gotten into that school of this is how you write them. This is how you give feedback. This is how you manage up. This is how you ask for feedback. Those types of things that are now so necessary because we're large and we're we're here to stay. How do you ask for feedback, Claude? <laughs> you actually say, I would really love some feedback on that presentation. Do you have any feedback for me? You can also say, I feel like I could have done that slide better. Do you have any feedback for me? Yeah, I'd actually love to give you some feedback. Thank you for asking. Because it's a fine art to give and receive feedback, and and we just don't do it enough. I would say with managing up, when employees complain about other employees, I hear the often complaints about those who are managing up. You know, they're not they're not doing their job. They're just making sure that the people above them think that they're doing their job and or like them and are politically uh, on their team. So walk me through what you would say is the right way to manage up. Well, I the way I would do it always is I always, always want to make my my boss's job easier for them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, put myself out of a job because that's how I know then I've done I've done it well. I'm ready to graduate. So that feels good for me. I feel recognized or accomplished or fulfilled. And the people under me hopefully have learned and they're ready to step up. But I've always, always been of that mindset that I want to make Gary's job easier, my boss's job easier. So how can I provide you value? How can I help? But also, instead of asking, just doing. And that's the whole thing of like, you know, going to the ball, not waiting for the ball. You know, someone like Gary isn't going to, if I say, how, how can I provide you value? Well, he might say, okay, do this. But he also just might say, what did you do? Like his mind, you know, he's, he's running very, very fast. So <laughs> I can imagine that that would be a, <laughs> that there are probably days where you want to tear your hair out. No offense, Gary, yeah. but it's like, you're, you're running a million miles per hour. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And, and it's absolutely great. It's, it's terrific. But I think the, you know, for me, everything comes down to teamwork, everything, everything comes back to enough self-awareness so that the team can have a collective awareness and accountability of like, okay, we we hit it out of the park. That was fantastic. Now let's go. Let's celebrate and let's go and, and do that next project. Or we lost that pitch. Okay, let's all feel it for a second and let's get back. Let's get our boots back on. But the account of holding, creating a place that is safe and brave enough for people to be able to hold their partners accountable. I, I, I mean, I think we're going to be doing that till the end of time. And it's something that my coaching and my mentoring does do. How to how to have self how to build self awareness how not to play the blame game how not to come from a well I I I I I but rather we or hey that is my fault and I'm going to do this to make it better next time. Given your background, your education, your training, how do you handle it as an employee first, and then we'll talk about as a boss when there's a member of that team that's disruptive and making it awful for everybody. We have to talk to them. I mean, ultimately, if that came to me, what I would do is I would do my best to empower the manager that came to me. Let's like look under every rock. Why is that happening? Does the person feel inadequate? Does the person feel 
um, as though uh, they never get the ball. Everyone else gets the ball. Like, what? why are they curmudgeon? Why are they If you're cynic? junior, though, in this situation mm-hmm. and that person is senior to you, how do you handle that? Oh, man. I mean, that's when we want to work on communication skills and courage and having enough strength to say in a safe space. And that's what I, I believe we are doing at Vayner to say, you know, can I talk to you for a second? I would have rather that you gave gave me feedback privately rather than publicly, for example. Uh, or can, can I talk to you for a second? I don't know if you know that, like, I'm dyslexic. And so it might take me a little bit while, a lot longer to get you that email. Something like that. But we have to encourage the cur- we have to encourage the courage and vulnerability of both sides, because it's not fair just to say, oh, it's all on you, junior person. Mm-hmm. If we're not training and spending enough time with manager, then, you know, the the seesaw really just never gets balanced. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn in your career? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm looking at your sign that says no limits right there. And I'm thinking (laughs) the limiting beliefs that I've had that have run circles and circles in my head for, you know, different times, different reasons or seasons is I think the toughest thing I've had to learn, which is. I only I can get myself out of that place. I can have all the mentors and the and the friends and the self-help books and all that stuff in the world, but at the end of the day, I'm the one that knows what I'm capable of doing. I really do. When you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you're just chilling out, you're just being normal like you know who you are. It's when we get sometimes into the ring or we get onto that field that we shy away or we let that other person take the ball or that other person take the client call or whatever it is. And I think that's the biggest thing I've had to learn is, is, is really to say no to the wild things. What's your biggest limiting belief? Uh, that I'm dumb. Really? Yeah. And where does that come I mean, from? I, I, you saw, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. No, you didn't hesitate there. at all. No, I'm dumb. Uh, it comes from being dyslexic. It comes from having a really hard time in school. And it comes from um, not giving myself enough options before I went into college. So I, I just kind of was like bumping along the road of, of academics and growing up with really you know, educated parents and brothers. And and I think that was also the time. It was, if I would have stayed in college, I would have graduated at 91. So that was also the time of Gen Xers. You know, that's what just what we did. So I've had to, I work super hard on that. I still work really hard on appreciating my more right brainness. Daniel Pink's book, A Whole A Whole New Mind, changed my life. I was able to call him and thank him about three years ago for wow. that, which was just the idea that those of us that are more empathetic leaning or right brain are really important in business today. Was the book the turning point for you or was there something else along the way in your life that got you past the limiting belief or at least put you on a journey to get past it? Yeah, so the book was amazing and, and super helpful. But in, I uh, believe it was uh, beginning of 2009, I was at JWT San Francisco. Was every, the economy was crashing. And I got this call one day from the CEO of JWT London, very posh, posh voice. And he said, <laughs> I hear we need someone with your skill sets. And in that moment, it wasn't, oh, what skill sets are those? I said, great, when do you need me? And I was 39 looking at 40. And I started my entire life again, moved to London, didn't know anyone. And that's when I could say to myself, I certainly didn't wear a badge. I could just say, okay, there's something here. Yeah. There's something here. And that was great. And so it happened at 39, not at 19. That's cool. 
That's all right. I actually, I love that because it reminds me, Shannon Brayton, I don't know if you are friendly. She's the CMO of LinkedIn. And she she talked about, she had a, a slightly different path than other people to the job of CMO. She was working in Silicon Valley. Most people had the Harvard Business School background. She basically left school to go work for Intuit and then did night school and came from a family with a single mom. And she said she spent so much of her career early on making excuses for that. And there was this turning point at a similar stage in her career to you where it was kind of like, no, I'm I am enough. What I'm doing here is valid and it's been validated. So I need to stop with this like demeaning myself thing in conversations or trying to explain it away and just move forward. I just listened to that this morning. It was a great it was a great. I'm so glad it was great. And I could really identify also when she she job jumped, she was poached. Yeah. And that did happen then. It, really, it, it, it does happen today. But I think we hopefully have enough mentors or have, had, uh, have learned by being burned or hurting people along the way that it's always good to communicate. Always good. Even if it's like I am going to leave because they are offering me 40K more. Mm-hmm. But I just want to thank you so much. And I'm going to help you backfill this role. Or my, my brother knows someone that's really going to be great, you know. There's a positive way to leave the job, yeah. even when you're leaving for something that's going to pay you better and, and be potentially a better situation. thousand percent. How have you negotiated those salaries and those promotions? Oh, I, it's a, such a good question because I'm also the one that's helping a lot of people in those conversations now. And so what I found is, and, and more so for females, of course, and, and I can speak to that uh, more, is it's so hard to it has it's a challenge to say this is what I'm worth, this is what my value is. Where we know the stats that men are, it's easier for them to say, "Yep, I'd like you know 30k raise." And it's a different response. Completely apples and bananas there for sure. So, um, but what I say is, you know, do some kind of uh, exercise for yourself to understand what your value is. You know, what when you go into that room, so you know, like, there is no wavering. You may waver in your voice. You may. And that's okay. But the fact of the matter is, is like, let's do an exercise before to see. Let's let's list out all of your strengths. Mm-hmm. What do people say about you on your teams? Like, let's – I really do a big rah-rah. I call them whiteboard sessions. And I, I want people to feel like they are empowered, whether or not it's to ask for a raise, I want to move departments, or literally just to be better people. You know, because that's that's all it is, is communication skills and arming yourself. You know, those whiteboard sessions, you're arming yourself with information. You have your backup. You know what the comps are. What are other people? Maybe you might not know what other people in your company specifically are getting paid, but you know what other people in your role could be getting paid. Well, the funny thing is in in, in the generation that's working today, this wonderful millennial generation who are changing the world and love them. They all know what each other makes. They all talk about it. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what I, it's oh. so fun. That's such a difference from from I mean, and I'm 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 on the old millennial side. Anyhow, if someone had asked you as a kid, what are you going to be when you grow up? What would you have told them? Movie director and a philanthropist. Really? Mm-hmm. Why would it have been a movie director? I mean, I get the philanthropist thing, given what you've talked about today. But why the movie director? I loved movies like loved movies my dad always took us to movies and i he gave me you know the super eight back in the day and we showed he showed us a lot of home movies and i just thought the idea of creating something was magical like putting something on a screen 
that is make-believe, I thought was really, really cool. And so it's no wonder I found a home in advertising agencies where I was a strategist and I got to bring creatives these ideas that they could mess with and manufacture something amazing out of. You know, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah. So what was the worst advice you got along the way? Oh, gosh. I, there's a couple. There's a, there's a couple handfuls. But um, I would say I really – I have to go back to this idea of I wish – I, I, so it's, it's more of a societal uh, uh, worst advice, which is it's okay to take time out of high school before you go to college. It's okay to figure it out. And I believe that's much more in the water stream today than mm-hmm. it was in, I graduated in 87. So, it, but it just wasn't. And I think I, I was so not prepared. I mean, I was not prepared, Rebecca. And I went and was what it was. And I, you know, I've, I've certainly made lemonade out of lemons and, a long time ago, but I wish I would have had an or enough gumption to say, you know what? No, I'm not ready. I'm really not ready. You know, mom, dad, you got to believe me here. What do you think you might have done at that moment if you took a step back that would have allowed you to get ready? Well, I probably would have traveled and I don't mean like, oh, glam travel. I would have. I love other cultures. Glamping. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have a glamping. Um, I probably would have gone on an outward bound, which I ended up going on uh, after my sophomore year. I would have done something to get my courage and my confidence up. And that's key. That was what I was. I, I couldn't connect those jigsaw puzzle pieces yet. And that's why when I went to school, I wasn't ready. I just didn't have it yet. And then once I got it, I was off to the races and, you know, found schools that spoke to me in a, in a way that I learn. And that I just wish we, you know, I don't wish. I mean, that's just going back in time. And so as a new mom, you better believe I'm going to be listening, doing my best mm-hmm. to listen to how she learns and watch how she learns and see if there's other more creative ways to, to provide her with, you know, world education. Well, your daughter is a very lucky girl, as are the 900 people that you mentor at VaynerMedia. Thank you so much for joining us, Claude. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been the best. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, we have two No Limits Entrepreneurs. They are Bianca Gates and Marissa Sharkey, who are the co-founders of Birdie Slippers, and they were nominated by Joelle Maslaton. Here's Bianca to tell you more. My name is Bianca Gates, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Birdies. The biggest business challenge that I have faced to date was when I made the decision to leave my full-time job at Facebook to pursue my side hustle business of Birdies full-time. The way I overcame it was a few things. We had some momentum. But still, it was a little bit scary to leave my full-time job and big salary for nothing. Um, It really took an email from Andy Dunn, the CEO and co-founder of Bonobos, um, who emailed me in January of 2017 and just said, I think Birdies is going to be huge. I'm hearing about it all over Manhattan. I'm going to write you a $100,000 check. You need to leave your job, and I'm going to help you raise um, a seed round for your business. And it was at that moment that I thought, huh, this could be something. I spoke to my husband, he couldn't have been more supportive and decided to go for it. And I quit my job in the spring of 2017 and have not looked back ever since. 
Congratulations, Bianca and Marissa. I wish both of you continued success with Birdie Slippers. And Joelle, thanks for the nomination. Remember, everyone, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of their story. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations or career questions to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, a shout out to our wonderful team here that helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.